Welcome to In the Black with your host, Bob Dickerson. Our program takes a look at the socioeconomic issues affecting black America. From education to news and politics to business matters, we have the stories and guests that you need to hear about. Now, here is Bob Dickerson. Hello, everybody. This is Bob Dickerson with In the Black on the Voice America Radio Network. We're going to have a great time today talking to you in the black, loving to do this show. We have what I think is an interesting show today. So we're on the eve of Super Tuesday 2. I uh, got some big, uh, big elections coming up, uh, mostly in Michigan and then in our neighboring state, Mississippi. Uh, did you know Mississippi had their, had their uh, primary? And so I don't know who you're for. It's going to be a, a good race, I think, uh, well contested between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. You know, it's really interesting when people drop out of the race and they decide who to support, what's behind that, because these are some of the same people that they've been saying, oh my God, they don't know what they're doing. And now all of a sudden they know what they're doing. And I think that it, the, the, the truth of the matter is most of these folks are good people. And uh, while we may not agree with everything that they do or everything that they say, they are not folks that we can say just don't know what they're doing. So, um, so I, I kind of, I kind of don't go along with that, but um, but at any rate, it's going to be an interesting uh, election. We've got an interesting rest of the year coming uh, coming up with all of the things that are in the news. We've been watching the economy, which uh, boy, the market was is is crazy these days. And uh, don't panic. I, I would suggest don't panic. I'm not going to panic. Uh, of course, the coronavirus is something that we should all be concerned about. You know, I think that most of us are developing or going back to the habits that we always should have had. Guard your personal space. Uh, be careful about shaking hands. Keep your hands out of your face. But but I'm really concerned about elderly people and folks who have uh, pre-existing illnesses and conditions. I just hope we get the coronavirus under control uh, it seems to be growing, but uh, that's what we expect. We expect it to grow because the more we test, the more we're going to find. The key is how fatal uh, it's going to be. And so, you know, our prayer is that uh, that the coronavirus uh, is not going to be as fatal as it has been in some countries, that we really get it under control here in the United States that we stop playing politics about it because it's too important. It, can, it doesn't know party or partisan leaning or who you are, it just you know, it can get anybody. And so we've got to really be concerned and concerned about our fellow man, concerned about all people. And we've got to do a good job of making sure that we get ahead of uh, these kinds of diseases and these kinds of things. We've got a lot of stuff happening in the world. And more and more of those things are critical, crucial, and, and certainly dangerous. And so coronavirus is just that. Uh, I want to talk a bit about, we're going to shift gears, because I want to talk about my favorite pastime, and that's golf. Now, I don't know if I've mentioned it on this program or not, but, uh, but I am a golfer. I love playing golf. 
and uh, played yesterday. I played Saturday. I play golf in the in the, and I'm in Alabama. So get this: in Alabama, there is great golf weather about nine months a year, and I typically play two to three times a week. And some weeks I'll squeeze in more. And so that's a lot of golf. I mean, that is a lot of golf. I play more golf than the president. I do. I admit it. I confess. I play more golf than the president. Now, he plays a fair amount of golf. He plays a lot of golf to be the president, but it's just a fair amount of golf for a golfer because when I'm at the golf course and I play most of the time at the same golf course, uh, it's a Robert Trent Jones golf course in Birmingham, Alabama, Oxmoor Valley. We've got the Valley course, which is an 18-hole championship course. We have the Ridge, which is another 18-hole championship course. And then we have a par three, an 18-hole par three. But the point is, I see, for the most part, a lot of the same guys at the golf course whenever I go. So I'm not the only one uh, who's playing golf two, three, sometimes more golf <laughs> times per week. But uh, but suffice it to say that uh, that our president loves golf. He loved it before he got to be president, and he plays a lot. Sadly, he criticized the former president for playing golf, oh, probably a tenth of the number of times that, uh, that the current president played, but we don't need to get into that. Golf is something that he does. Uh, but I do think the optics around playing golf when we're in a crisis are something that everybody should, uh, should consider. Uh, it's something about going out and doing something that you enjoy that is purely recreational for whatever reason. You can't spend it any other way. It is purely recreational. And so to go out and do uh, and, and just have your recreation, even though I think we all deserve it, we all need our R&R, it is therapeutic. I get it. I get it. I play golf 400 times a year probably, maybe more, if I could get away with it. But the optics around it are such that we have to be careful with that type of thing. We should always and all the time be con concerned about what's happening in this country. And when you have an awesome responsibility of being the elected leader, then I think you have to dispatch that responsibility in a way that says that you're always concerned and that, that, uh, that you're always on the job you know, that you are always on the job. And, you know, just to be fair, when I play golf during the week, when I get a chance to play, I have my phone. I'm not the kind of guy that goes out without my phone and, and I'll look at it. And so if I get an important phone call, I may take it. Uh, if I, um, if there's a text or an email that I need to respond to, I may respond to it. So I'm not, I'm not that guy that shuts everything off. And I know that you can be aware of what's happening in your, in, in your surroundings or with your business while you're on a golf course. But, uh, but it is important that we are concerned about optics. And that goes for everybody. It goes for me. It goes for you. And it goes for everyone else. So just thought I'd throw that in because I played golf this weekend. I didn't play very good this weekend. I had two awful rounds of golf two of my worst rounds of golf I had back-to-back -back Saturday and Sunday. Now, I'm going to attribute my bad round of golf Sunday to not going to church. 
So I was being punished with a bad round of golf. And buddy, was I punished. Now, I don't know what the deal was on Saturday. I am not really sure. But on Saturday, I had, well, it wasn't quite as bad as Sunday, but it was equally as disgusting. And so for you golfers out there, you know how it is. Sometimes you play golf and it just doesn't work right. And sometimes you go out and you feel like you get in a groove and things work well. So just want to talk a little bit about golf. We're going to switch gears and ask you, what do you think about some of the things that are being done to sort of cope with this coronavirus? I, I noted on the news the other day that uh, there's a, there, that there are teams in Europe and other player, places that, have been, that are playing games without people in the stands. Of course, uh, South by Southwest was canceled. There are other cancellations. Boy, this thing is big. So what do you think about professional athletes deciding, and LeBron James was one who, who made a statement. I don't know. He may have since recanted it, but he made a statement that said he did not and would not play a game before nobody. In other words, if the stands were empty and there was nobody there, then his decision would be not to play. Now, I'll just share my opinion. I think that uh, you play when your team needs you to play. And, uh, and, and the Lakers are having a good year. And so that might not be the game that uh, the Lakers play in front of uh, the, nobody in the crowd. But I do think you play when your team needs you to play. And if there, there is an important game, regardless of the circumstances, then I think you ought to play. I think when your teammates are depending on you, then I think you ought to play. And I do get that, you know, when you're at LeBron James's status in the game, um, I'm not sure if he's the GOAT of basketball or not. You could make a lot of arguments about it being some other players with more rings or, you know, Bill Russell certainly had 11 rings. But I don't think anybody's calling him the GOAT either. But when you're a player of his stature, then you get a chance to make decisions that other players can't make. I mean, that's fair. That's the way it is in life. That's the way it is in sports. That's, that's the way it is in business. That's just the way it is. Uh, he can call some shots that other folks couldn't call. But I do, and this is Bob Dickerson within the black speaking, saying that I think that if your teammates need you, if it's a game of import, an important game, then you ought to play. I think that uh, you remember a couple of years ago, uh, there was somewhat of a brouhaha about when you're on the road and it wasn't an important game or you had some players uh, who might need a rest. And then you rest a LeBron James when, for example, they come to play the Atlanta Hawks. Well, I may go to, I'm in Birmingham. We don't have an NBA team. And if I knew the Lakers, and it may have been Cleveland at that time when LeBron was playing for the, for the Cavs, if I knew they were coming to Atlanta, then I'm not necessarily a Hawks fan, but I'm going to go to the Hawks game because I want to see LeBron or, you know, or, or one of the other superstars, Steph Curry. I went over in South Step last year, as a matter of fact, right after he got injured. Uh, Kevin Durant, you want to go and see those players play. 
And so when they're benched, and not because they're hurt, but, but they're benched so that they save themselves for other quote unquote more important games and save themselves for the stretch run, then as a fan, you kind of get, you know, you get ill about that. As a coach, a teammate, and a team owner whose sole intent is to take that team to the Super Bowl or NBA championship or World Series, then you, you, when you look at it from their perspective, then you tend to understand. And so, so again, with the coronavirus and playing before empty stands, I know that's got to be tough, especially if you've been playing all of your life in front of these big crowds. But I do think that you've got to do what's best for your team, best for your teammates, to sit a player, to rest them. Yeah, I know it sucks if you just bought some tickets and you got to go over there and take your kids. But sometimes that's just the way it is. This is Bob Dickerson on the Voice America Radio Network with In the Black. We're on Alexa smart speakers and connected devices. Hey, Alexa, play Being Here podcast on Apple Podcasts. Try it now. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to In the Black with Bob Dickerson. If you have a question or a comment about the program, please send an email to Robert B. Dickerson Jr. at gmail.com. That's Robert B. Dickerson, Jr. at gmail.com. Now, back to In the Black. Hey, this is Bob Dickerson with In the Black on the Voice America Radio Network. I want to talk a bit about uh, a proposed rule change to the Community Reinvestment Act that uh, has the potential of letting banks lend less money than they already do to low and moderate income borrowers and those communities. Now, some of you may not be familiar with the Community Reinvestment Act or CRA, uh, as it is called in the, in the jargon, but, uh, but it's an, an act that was passed, uh, it, was part, it was the Housing and Community Development Act of 1977. And what it did, it was designed to encourage commercial banks and savings associations to help meet the needs of borrowers in all segments of their communities, including including low and moderate income neighborhoods. Now, if you go back in the past, uh, you can find even in city halls on maps where there were areas that were being excluded areas where credit wasn't available, areas where uh, home loans were not available. And so what had happened was lenders, and in some cases the federal government, 
had decided that some of these areas were undesirable, that you shouldn't make loans in these areas. And so when the maps were drawn to designate the areas where lending should not take place, then the lines drawn around those areas typically were red. And so that's where we get the, 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 the phrase or the word redlining. And so these areas were redlined. Well, needless to say, and I don't think I have to inform you that the areas that were redlined were areas that were inhabited by low and moderate income people, people of color, and people who were not able to move into some of the more affluent areas. And because of the action of activists and advocates and people who understood that this type of redlining uh, was, uh, was not good for communities, uh, was not fair that a federally chartered financial institution, i.e. a bank, would be able to participate in this kind of uh, discrimination, then, then those folks advocated uh, and got the Community Reinvestment Act passed. Uh, Gail Sincata, uh was one of those folks. She was with the National People's Action in Chicago, and she led a national fight. She's probably the name of the person who is most synonymous with CRA. So 1977, uh, 43 years ago, now the law was passed. And the interesting thing about it is, uh, is, is nearly all banks earn passing marks under the current rules of the Community Reinvestment Act. 98% of the banks pass. Now, the trouble with 98% of the banks passing is simply this. When you look at what low and moderate income communities look like in terms of uh, deferred maintenance on real estate, in terms of growing businesses that create employment, uh, in terms of attracting uh, more wealth and more people of wealth. And we can underscore that because there's something happening where people of wealth are coming back, but albeit for not the best reason. Then you would say that CRA's grade is eh, maybe a C, maybe a C minus. It certainly couldn't be an A. And so you would just think that. Well, you know, when I mentioned to underscore something, some of these communities are now becoming more attractive because there was a law passed a couple of years ago that created something called opportunity zones. Now, the opportunity zones came out of the tax law that, uh, that basically gave the wealthy individuals in this country an opportunity to become more wealthy. And in these zones, they get a chance to come in, buy property in these uh, depressed areas, uh, in these low and moderate income areas, in these rural areas and urban areas where the property is cheap. They can come in and buy the property and get a 10-year tax break on capital gains when they buy it in these zones. What they don't have to do is create jobs for the residents. 
they don't have to include residents and stakeholders in any equitable position or ownership in whatever project comes out. Uh, they don't have to do any of that. They just have to park their money. And the theory is that, well, if we, if we let these rich people come in, they're going to buy this property and it's going to be good for us. <laughs> okay. We'll see about that. But anyway, um, uh, that is one of the things that we have to be conscious of when we're looking to develop our communities. So what's happening with CRA right now is, uh, is something that is, is really interesting. The, there, there are three primary regulatory agencies, the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. And so about uh, well, over a year ago, the OCC, that's the Comptroller's Office, came out with a plan for CRA a new plan for CRA, proposed new rules for the CRA. And groups that I work with and that I interact with really have a problem with some of the new rules that have been proposed for CRA. Now keep in mind that uh, the CRA was passed in 1977. It was to end discrimination known as redlining. It required banks to meet the credit needs of communities where they do business. And also remember this, and I hope you'll just admit that discrimination in lending is still a problem. Let me say that again. Discrimination in lending is still a problem. Yet, even though it's a problem, and when you look at our communities, the benefits of CRA are not as apparent as I think they should be. Some folks want to weaken the law, a law that already sees 98% of the banks pass it, a law that says that over 40 years, yes, there have been some gains, but, uh, but we still have so far to go, a law that really hasn't stopped redlining, not in its tracks. It has impacted it, but it hadn't stopped it in its tracks. The last thing we need to do is weaken a law that hasn't had the effect that we wanted it to have. So as we look at the, the, the proposal from the controller of the currency, and that, that, that proposal was made uh, back in, in December of 19. Well, well actually, the, the notice was put out. Uh, there was a little bit of a problem with that. But let me just run through some of the things that, that I think and that we think are problematic with this new proposed rule. Uh, we think that it doesn't uh, require banks to affirmatively and continually meet the credit needs and banking services of low and moderate income neighborhoods and communities. Uh, I, we think that it broadens the CRA activities to the degree that the, these activities or things that banks may be given credit for actually don't have anything to do with uplifting low and moderate income people. In fact, it significantly dilutes the focus of the bank's activities on LMI areas. Uh, and it sets these arbitrary performance thresholds. Uh, and so we've got to have data and the data has to be clear. If you're going to have rules, the rules have to be clear. They have to be public. 
And so right now, the way the new proposal is written, get this, it is unclear whether if a bank did the same thing it did for the last three years, it would get the same grade, a better grade or worse grade. That's no way to do a proposal. So we also get this. So banks say where they do CRA activities. They are called assessment areas. These are the areas in which the bank has branches and takes deposits. And so these are the areas where banks are assessed. Well, what about this? If you have 50 assessment areas, that's 50 areas that you have branches and you take deposits, so you have 50 assessment areas. Under this rule, you could fail in just about half of them. That means you could do nothing, simply nothing, in half of those areas and still get a passing grade. Uh, they want to simplify CRA down to a point where something they call the one ratio, that you take the value of a bank's CRA activities. Well, first we gotta argue about what the value is because the value is subjective. But we take a value of the bank's CRA activities and we use that as a percentage of the bank's something like total size, total deposits, some metric. And the CRA grade will come as a result of the percentage that comes about. So it doesn't have anything to do with how many LMI people you reached, what kind of impact you had, whether or not you helped cre create jobs or anything, it's just a number. And that doesn't make sense. We'll be back with more In the Black, continuing this discussion after these very important messages. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to In the Black with Bob Dickerson. If you have a question or a comment about the program, please send an email to Robert B. Dickerson Jr. at gmail.com. That's Robert B. Dickerson Jr. at gmail.com. Now, back to In the Black. This is Bob Dickerson within the Black on the Voice America Radio Network. Uh, we were talking about the Community Reinvestment Act before the break. Of course, that's the act that was passed in 1977 that says that banks are gonna meet the credit needs of all communities from which they take deposits, uh, not just the affluent communities, but those that are low and moderate income as well. This is a very important law, and even though it is true, it hasn't done everything that it should have done. It has leveraged billions of dollars 
and that's billions with a B, of, uh, of loans and investments that would not have happened at all had it not been for CRA. And, uh, and so that we're, we're, I want to make sure that you know, and I said that 98% of the banks pass CRA, only 2% fail. And of that 98%, maybe there's some that in the Bob Dickerson evaluation technique might not get you know, that good a grade. Not saying that they would fail, but some of them would. There are some good banks out there that, that are doing good jobs under CRA. And I, I want to make sure that I'm not going to name any good ones or bad ones. But I do want you to know that there are some that are doing a good job. So if you really think about it, if you're a consumer and you think, okay, well, this really doesn't have anything to do with me. It doesn't matter. Well, let me tell you a couple of ways that it does. So if, you, if you're in a urban, low to moderate income area, there is in all likelihood fewer bank branches today than they were 10 or 15 years ago. There are fewer bank branches today than they were 20, 25 years ago. Well, how do you get your financial services in LMI communities? Well, check cashing operations, um, money stores and title puns and payday lenders. So unfortunately, what is happening in these communities, the financial services are still being delivered but they're not being delivered by fair, not predatory, honest, we hope, financial institutions. They're being delivered by predatory, high interest rate, fuzzy rules, shyster sort of other institutions. And so when banks have left our communities, they've been followed by financial services providers that oftentimes are predators. Had banks stayed, the predators wouldn't have come. And where there are banks and the banks are contributing to the community in a robust sort of way, and the banks are engaged with the community and engaged with the customers, then we don't see as many of the title pond, payday lenders, tote the note car dealers and all of that kind of stuff. Do you know that in the state in which I live, Alabama, you can get a payday loan and your APR, your annual percentage rate, your interest rate can be as high as 456%. Now, just think about it. You got a mortgage loan, you're paying 3%, 4%. You got one recently, maybe less than that. You get one next week, it probably will be less than that based on what rates are doing. Even a car loan, you're paying, you know, you know, anywhere from zero to 5% for more than likely. Even if you've got eh, not so really good credit, your car loan still 10 or 12 but if you go and you get a payday loan, it's 456%. So we need banks in our communities to, to handle those things. 
and satisfy the credit needs of the communities. Now, if banks are not lending in a certain community and it impacts the value of property. So if you're in a community where you can't get a loan and houses don't sell and they sit on the market for a long time and people can't get home improvement loans and so the maintenance on houses is deferred for a long time, all of the property value in that particular community goes down. So when there is not adherence to the Community Reinvestment Act, it creates a vacuum in those communities. Uh, the, the, the absence of good services, fairly priced services in these communities uh, creates a void. And, and one of my colleagues at the National Community Reinvestment Coalition is known to say that banks are our community's best hope. Banks are our community's best hope, even from a real estate standpoint. Uh, when you're in a shopping center or a neighborhood commercial district and it's got a bank or two, then it's got a drugstore, it's got a cleaners, it's got a, you know, it's got some other retail establishments. It is considered to be vibrant. You know, it's a good place to be. And on the other hand, when the banks leave, that's an indication that this is places, this place is desolate. Uh, there's no economy here. This isn't where you want to be. And so just the implication of losing bank branches in low and moderate income communities is, 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 is bad. It, it hurts. It's not good. And again, they're followed by, when, they, when they're gone, oftentimes in the same building, there's a check casher. There's a title pond. I used to live in Bessemer, Alabama. And I would drive up a corridor, it was called Bessemer Road, and, and then it was Bessemer Superhighway. But anyway, it was about a 12-mile drive from my home to my office, about 12 miles. And in my 12-mile drive, 12, and this is a busy street that comes straight through the heart of the, the Western and the most um, populated, densely, densely populated, oh, densely populated area of town. And there were three branches of commercial banks, three in 12 miles. And this is an urban area. This is an urban area, three branches in 12 miles. There were 22, 22, check cashing, payday lenders, title pond stores. Three banks, 22 predators or potential predators. And I don't want to paint them all with a broad brush. But as my grandmama would have said, the shoe fits, wear it. 12 miles, three banks, 22 questionable financial services providers. And that's a problem. On the other hand, if I went to a more affluent area, let's just say Highway 280, Highway 280, in that less than that distance, in half that distance, five or six miles, well, 
first of all, we're not going to see any title pun, maybe one check cashing and two payday lenders because there are a lot of folks that don't handle their finances right. We know that. But there are a dozen banks, a dozen banks. And, and, and get this, even when you look at the architecture in these areas, it's, it looks like a Taj Mahal. When you look at the architecture of even the banks that stay in the hood, nah, it looks like the hood. And I think that banks should do better. So it's very important, I think, that we hold our banks accountable. We have to hold them accountable. Uh, I, I wish that all of you could join me in learning more about this proposal for uh, redoing, and in many cases, in my opinion, undoing CRA, uh, making it easier for the banks to pass, regardless of what impact it has in our community. We need to all be aware of this. Uh, and if you get an opportunity, speak out. So what can you do? Go in your bank and ask for their CRA statement. Learn more about what you do, perhaps by following the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, that is ncrc.org if you wanna go online. Uh, become an activist around this issue because it's very important that we that we shepherd our finances and make sure that others pay attention to our finances as well. It's awfully important that we make sure that we get good and fairly priced financial services in our communities. And since there is a law that says that financial institutions will do this, then we need to make sure that they adhere to that law. I think it's awfully important. I'd love to talk more about this with you. Uh, you can look at look me up on at in the black. That's on Twitter at in the black. That's N T H B L K at B Dickerson Jr. on Twitter at B Dickerson Jr. on Twitter. You can check out my Facebook. It is Bob Dickerson, and also check out the website BobDickerson.com. Hey, check me out, learn more about the Community Reinvestment Act. Uh, we've got to fight, fight, as one of my colleagues will say, fight. Hey, we'll be back with more In the Black on the Voice America Radio Network right after these messages. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. We're on Alexa Smart Speakers and Connected Devices. Hey, Alexa, play Being Here Podcasts on Apple Podcasts. Try it now. You are listening to In the Black with Bob Dickerson. If you have a question or a comment about the program, please send an email to Robert B. Dickerson Jr. at gmail.com. That's Robert B. Dickerson Jr 
at gmail.com. Now, back to In the Black. This is Bob Dickerson with In the Black on the Voice America Radio Network. Hey, once again, we were talking about the Community Reinvestment Act. It's under attack. It is under attack by the two regulators, the FDIC and the OCC. FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The OCC is the Office of the Controller of the Currency. Uh, we're going to be talking about that a long time uh, both in my professional capacity as well as on this radio program. I hope that you will learn more. And if there's ever an opportunity to make your voice heard, uh, please do so. I would hope you do it, even if you don't agree with me, because we need voices to speak out on the subject. We need to let people know who are in decision-making positions how we feel. And we have to use every method at our fingertips of doing it, whether it's on social media, whether it's writing letters, whether it's going and visiting our Congress people, both in our state level, but, but especially on the federal level, uh, we need to let folks know how we feel and how we think things will affect them. The CRA is really import, important. Uh, we cannot allow all of the affluence uh, to just get into one place. We cannot allow federally insured and federally chartered financial institutions not to do the right thing for our communities. We have a law. It needs to be strengthened and not weakened. And I must take my head off to the Federal Reserve Board, the Federal Reserve Bank, because they have not gone along with this new proposal for CRA. Normally, all of them get together and they work out something that makes sense. Uh, it, but they haven't done it this time. Only two of them have sort of gone gone rogue. And CRA is important because it does have a an impact on and, and an opportunity to close the racial wealth gap. And we've talked about that. And I think that's something that we we really need to talk more about. Uh, when you really think about wealth, what is it? The wealth is the the difference between what you own and what you owe. It's the difference between your total assets and your total liabilities. Now, wealth is not income. Uh, please keep that in mind because you can make a lot of money and spend a lot of money and you still don't have any wealth. Uh, so wealth is what you, what you save. Wealth is what you accumulate. Uh, you accumulate wealth in saving money. You know, cash is a great uh, <laughs> provider of wealth by making good investments. Boy, the stock market is doing some crazy stuff. I need to go figure out what it did today. Uh, by making good real estate purchases and, and having equity in real estate. So wealth and wealth is, is taken away from debt. You know, mortgages, which, you know, mortgages are probably something that most of us have to have, but mortgages, car loans, credit card loans, and other debt actually make you have less wealth. But it's really important that uh, we close the wealth gap in America. You know, many Americans, especially people of color, are said to be on this road to zero wealth. Yes, that is a prediction. What has happened is over the last uh, several years, the wealth of people of color has gone down. 
uh, it has actually gone down tremendously. Uh, and so this growing racial wealth divide that's facing black and Latino households uh, is sort of, uh, it's, it's impacting the American middle class. And uh, in a way, it seems to be heading or, or leading us toward this kind of apartheid state. And the reason I say that is you know that uh, somewhere in the next 10, 15, 20 years, that black and brown people are gonna be the majority of the citizens of the good old USA. And if the majority of our citizens are headed towards zero wealth, then the majority owns everything. And so that is really apartheid that we saw in, in uh, South Africa for years and years and years in most of our lifetimes. And so I think it's very important that we come to grips with the fact that in America, we must do something to stop this. We must do something to close the racial wealth gap. We must understand that uh, this racial wealth inequality is a threat to America. It is a threat to our way of life. And so we're going to be talking about that more on the program, but, uh, but I'm hoping I hear from you about that. Reach out to me, send me a message, you know, hit me on Twitter because, you know, I love to hear differing thoughts. And I certainly would love to hear your ideas on how we close the racial wealth gap. You'll hear us talking about that from time to time on in the black. Hey, let me, let me, end and, and just talk about something. You know, I don't think we did a Bible basic last, last, um, last time. I think we got, we got caught up talking to you about how to start a business and why start a business and, and who could help you start a business. And we volunteer at the uh, Birmingham Business Resource Center to do that when you're ready to start a business. And we didn't talk that much about, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of thought process that you need to have in starting a business and the fact that there are some basic principles in the Bible that adhere and that, that sort of just line up with business, that line up with good business, that line up with being or becoming a good entrepreneur. And so I just wanted to just highlight just a couple of things, but you know, you must live your purpose. You must live your purpose. You know, everybody, everybody's life has a purpose. And in your business life, you have a purpose. In some cases, your purpose might not be making a gazillion dollars, but it may be making a product or service that helps other people. You may, in the, in the, the words of A.G. Gaston, just need to find needs and fill them. And if, if in finding needs and filling them, if God blesses you with riches, then accept the riches, but understand that you're on a mission, that you have a purpose, and that your purpose is where your happiness is. Your purpose is where your happiness is. And I think that that is very important. Uh, in order to find your purpose, you have to find your spiritual gifts. You've got to be able to look inside and see inside and tap into what's inside of you so that you can find 
your purpose. You can find the purpose of your entrepreneurship. You can find the purpose of your zeal to own a business. You can find a purpose uh, as you attempt to use your business to, to help others. So if you're in business, I want to say about five things that you need to be. Number one, you've got to be passionate. Nobody likes a passive person with a great idea. Number two, you've got to be persistent. There'll be closed doors and brick walls and stumbling blocks, but with God's help, you'll get by all of them. Be precise. You've got to know what you're doing and you got to do what you know. Be positive. Be positive. Your attitude is going to actually help you reach an altitude. And then finally, be praiseful because when God has blessed you, then you want to give him praise. This is Bob Dickerson on the Voice America Radio Network. We'll be back again next week within the Black. Thank you for tuning in. Please join host Bob Dickerson for another edition of In the Black next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a terrific week.